Peace and blessings, everybody. You're listening to The Good Brother Experience, where it is I, the good brother, the original black man. I am Reek. What you doing? How you doing? How you been? For starters, make sure you're getting some water. Don't be dehydrated in these streets. Just because it's not summer doesn't mean you don't need to drink some water. Secondarily, rate, review, and subscribe to my program. The more readings you leave, the more rankings that you leave, the more lit I become. And last but not least, if you would like to email me, email me at thegoodbrotherexperience at yahoo.com. Once again, that is goodbrotherexperience at yahoo.com. All right, so you guys see the title, you see what's going on. This is the man who I often refer to in my show. This is the person that's shown me so many things as I've come along. This is the patriarch in my family. The one, the only, Uncle Leo, otherwise known as Uncle Leon. What's happening? How you doing? Man, I'm all right. So, uh, unbeknownst to you, I speak about you on my show a lot. And I just found out. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the reason for that is, you know, you know what both of us have in a big family we got to see the very same people from different angles and from different perspectives and i've seen every iteration of being an adult i've seen the single man that chose to be single with no children i've seen the man to go to have a wife and have no children i've seen the man to have children with his wife and get divorced i've seen a man to have a children um to have no children with his wife and not get divorced. I've seen, you know, women in our family get married. I've seen, you know, the single parent situation. I've seen the divorce situation. But you specifically, it's like, okay, I can go in either direction because I have an uncle that doesn't struggle with the ladies, that made it to his 70s, that has no children, and doesn't regret it. This too could be my destiny. <laughs> because when I see the glowing example of my face, I'm looking at a man that's happy. You got all your personal time. You do what you want as you want. You haven't aged a day, I want to say, in the past 15 years. And, um, you know, you're you're approaching the middle of your seventh decade in the world. So as opposed to just asking about the cultural things that you've seen coming up, I want to just really focus on you decade by decade. So you were born in 1950. I was. Bring the uh, microphone closer to you as you're speaking. Thank you. So you literally have seen every iteration of America. You've seen segregation. You've seen when segregation wasn't popping no more. You've seen <laughs> you've seen when there was integration going on. You've seen all of our black heroes um, get assassinated. You was there for Afros. You was there for the crack epidemic. You was there for the birth of hip hop. You've literally seen everything. So as far as the 60s is concerned, what was it really like? Not what you read in the book. What was it really like? What was it really like for a black man in the 60s, before and after segregation? Well, the 60s were a, a sort of a conglomerate of the, the 50s, because in the, the 50s, you know, to your point, there was segregation. Right. Okay. Then um, in, the, in 54, you had the, uh, 1954, you had the, um, or 56, I can't remember which one. But uh, you had the desegregation um, law that was brought about um, in Arkansas. Right. Okay. And then things started to change in, 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 in the 60s because, I, I, I don't know, I, I, I th this is just through my own lens. Okay. But, um, but 
I, I saw the change in, in how people dressed and in, and in how people acted. At that time, you had, you had more families. There, there, were more, there were more couples that were married around that time. And then in 1965, they instituted uh, the welfare state, mm -hmm. the real great society through Linda Johnson. And that gave, um, th that gave women the choice between accepting a check or staying with, the, with their husband. And, and they decided for the check. This is not what's being spoken about, you exactly. know. Now, this is what's not being spoken about, you know, every, no. because everybody always says like, "Yo, it's not like the olden days where you know marriage meant something." But as somebody that literally watched it in real time, this uh, glorification of marriage isn't what it appeared to be to the naked eye. Right. Exactly. So, exactly. so you know, for you specifically, you know, you're coming of age. The reason why I didn't get into fifties because you was from one years old to 10 years old. Like at that point, you're just getting raised. But you doing things on your own volition happened in the 60s. And with you, it was a very unique experience because not only were you brought up with both parents, but you were one of, by the time 1960 started, you was one of six. You was one of six. So before we get to the next five, you know, before TV came out and cable came out and stuff like that, what well, what was it like literally being pretty much like the second dad in the home for all that time when everybody's coming to you for the advice, everybody's coming to you for the protection? That that's a good question. Uh, I, this might be a little bit off the subject, but mm -hmm. someone asked me what was it like being the oldest of eleven children. Yeah, one hundred percent. You come in. It's almost like you came in. It, you were born into a world, and you knew absolutely nothing. So to make it to, uh, th there's an analogy I want to I want to put forth. Being the oldest of eleven was like entering a mansion, and you're blind. <laughs> And you have to navigate 15 rooms. <laughs> and you have to learn every room. Right. And then guess what? Every once in a while, someone comes over and rearranges the furniture. <laughs> right. So that, that's pretty much how it was. But before we even get to that, we have to speak about how legendary Grandpa was. You know, Grandpa Joe Payton. Because um, a man that left school, what, what fourth grade? Fourth or sixth grade. One so, school, yeah. Between then? Yeah. World War II veteran. So this is a stoic man's man. So, and, and if I'm not mistaken, he was the greatest generation, right? As far as Absolutely. a part of the greatest generation. Yeah, absolutely. So he's coming through that down south, military, no-nonsense kind of situation. Um, married grandma, relatively young. And you are the first iteration of his legacy. Right. So what was it like to watch him navigate from one child to two children to three children in a two-bedroom house? And as things progressed, you're not changing, but everything around you is changing because more and more humans is in the crib. Right. Well, one of the things I saw 
I, I saw a lot of males um, of both persuasions, black, white, some Hispanics. Mm -hmm. And most of them, I didn't look at as alpha males. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, they were usually directed by their wives. That, that This is what I saw. A, a very much so, like happy wife, happy life situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. But my father was the anomaly. My father was the king of his castle. Or at least that's what he thought. <laughs> <laughs> Right, because I, I I couldn't understand why he would always talk about his house, but he was regulated uh, or relegated to the back room. <laughs> I didn't figure that out until I got older, right? You know, and then I started to realize who the real power behind the throne was, mm -hmm. and on the throne, right? Because from, from my understanding, because Grandpa passed away when I was eight. And grandma passed away when I was ten. Grandpa was the was the was the muscle and the decision maker, but grandma had the intellect. Absolutely. Not to say that grandpa was stupid in any regard, but oh, no. she took education more seriously. She went to be more learned than him because she wasn't in a similar situation that grandpa was in. She was able to go to college and graduate high school and everything Absolutely. like that. So that's what you mean by like, although he's the king of the castle, the person that was really navigating behind the scenes was grandma. And I, and I think she was the salutatorian of, of her senior class. If I I'm can believe mistaken. it. So, um, yeah, so there's that juxtaposition. You got the strength and the intellect all in the same situation. Absolutely. One other thing I have to say about my father. He had one of the... I've never seen any anyone with, with a work ethic like he had. Mm -hmm. This was... This was a gentleman that um, that was never late and and never took a day off. And I kind of got that 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 work ethic from him. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when I was on my job, I didn't bang out on days. I was I was never late. Right. You know what I mean? And uh, and um, with the exception of maybe some vacations never took a day off so he was a great role model in that regard yeah that's that's very interesting because although he was never late he pretty much took care of everybody on a custodial salary from my understanding right because he didn't have a job once he got to new york he just went right into being a custodial worker right it's not like he was like a trucker or anything prior he just went right into that from my understanding uh well when when we lived in uh, in new york city he used to work for a company called Emerson. Okay. It was an electronics company. And um, he worked there for a while. And then um, uh, it, it, when, when he came out to, um, to well, when we moved to Long Island, mm. okay, he became a custodian. Right. Right. So, but, uh, but it was a civil service job, which was really interesting because on Long Island, in order to get a civil service job, you had to register as a Republican. Uh. So my father said, ah, I can register as a Republican, but guess what? <laughs> I can vote for whoever I want. Exactly. So, so he always voted Democrat, even though he was registered as a Republican. And, you know, me and you are in this very unique situation to where, you know, our um, formative years was pretty much directed by the same man and woman because I got to have the same inkling of that. 
and on top of everything else, um, we were both raised in the same house. Yes. So, so from my understanding, you know, because of redlining, they brought all the World War II veterans out to Amityville, and they all streamlined them into this flat-top housing, which is why they refer to it as the ha- as the flats. Because for those listening at home, you know, most houses, they have that triangular roof for when it rains and when it snows. But basically, they brought a whole bunch of Legos together in Amityville and put a put a, some sheetrock on the top of it with a flat piece of board and a chimney and just gave all these houses out for, I want to think the median price of a house was like 60000 at that time. Yeah. So for $60,000, him and grandma went from New York City to what you're saying. Oh, not $60,000. No. The houses were $6,000. Six. Yes. The number six. Okay. Yes. So that's how he was able to tap in and get that house. Absolutely. So I just need, so I, I just want to um, jump ahead a little bit. Now you're 18. It's 1968. You know, you've seen a few assassinations. Whoa. You, you know, you've, um, you've done everything a man can do as far as high school is concerned. You know, literally segregation ended in your high school while you were in high school, which not too many people can say that. So... What is it like to be 18 years old and literally look at 10 siblings? <laughs> You're about to go into the world as a man with 10 other siblings about to do what he needs to do. What is, what is your thoughts at that point in time? My thoughts exactly were, I'm becoming a man and I have, I have t- uh, 10 siblings. Shout out to 1968 because that's the year my mom was born. Right. And I was thinking that there was no way in the world I was going to be anybody's father. Walk me through that, because, you know, you know, very similarly to, um, you know, the whole alcoholic kind of story. Like if you have an alcoholic father, either you can succumb to being an alcoholic or you'll be like, yo, I'm never going to touch a drink because I sold it to my dad. You decided like, yo, I seen what kids do to people. I ain't going out like that. Yeah. Walk me through what brought you to that decision so early in your life? Well, I, I kind of noticed this, the, the system as it was. Okay, what and was I that? I noticed that, um, that those that were married and had children and worked, they worked so hard that they couldn't really be deep thinkers. And that's the way the system is supposed to work. So I said, in order for me to be a thinker, I can't be encumbered by certain things. You didn't want your body to be a vessel for commerce. Because we're pretty much how the system treats you, that you're just well, a vessel for the, to make them money. Well, that and my mind. Right. Because they get you by the mind first. 100%. Because they, uh, they convince you that you, uh, Tariq, you need to be married. You need to have your house with your two-car garage and... Um, and your 2.2 kids. Because the, uh, the marketing of the American way happened around this time, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the American way was, as you were saying, two-car garage, career man, get married when you're 20, have kids, stay at this job for 40 years, we'll give you a T-shirt and a trophy when you're 65 years old. You probably have 10 more years left of life. Thanks for being here. Uh, no, no, they promised you a gold watch, <laughs> but they gave you the T-shirt. <laughs> Right. So, and what I was saying before, when I said that when Cable came out, you was one of six at that point in time, and then five years go by, then a second iteration is going on. So, you're in a very unique situation to where, 
yes, you're the older brother to the first six, but then you're like the brother uncle to the second six. And you're dealing with this literally before you leave high school. What is this like? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, you know, I, I, I hate to look at it from a negative perspective. Yeah. But, but, but it, was, it was good and bad in the situation. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things, I couldn't go to dances, I couldn't go on dates, because I had to babysit. Right. Or I had to um, look after the, the children. And um, uh, it, 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 was, it was interesting. I had to look after the kids, but they weren't mine. Right. You know what I mean? So, uh, the, the idea of not having autonomy, I think that that was part of the problem, you know, the way I, I saw it. Mm -hmm. But as it turned out, it gave me a certain structure. It taught me what to appreciate. Right. You know, like, like for instance, to have a nice place to live in, you know, and not not because of aesthetics so much, but it was practical because if you live in a nice place, uh, I, I always said that if you have a cluttered house, hmm. you have a cluttered mind. Okay. You know, that's right. just for me. No, I'm with you. Every house okay. you've ever had has always been tidy. Yes, yes. And, um, and, and that should be your, your, your platform to launch to do other things in life. Mm -hmm. Okay, but if you're caught up in a lot of mishigash and a lot of, of angst, and, right? you know what I mean? Well, first of all, when you're a kid, if you grow up in that kind of situation, you, you, you think it's normal. Right. You know what I you mean? You think calamity is normal. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, that's, that's the problem I have for, for those that leave home and start a family immediately. Because it really depends on how you grew up. Right. If you had calamity in your house, then now you're going to bring calamity to your children. Right. Okay. And, and, and you're not even thinking about it. You're just following protocol at that point. Exactly. Exactly. You're given a script, mm -hmm. pretty much. You know, and we all follow scripts. Everybody. From call center agents to people in all these kind of jobs, everybody's following a script. But the one thing I want to do before I jump into the 70s is something else happened in the 60s. You're the only family member that pursued musicianship. My uncle was in a band or a group that was going down. Where did that come about? That's, that's interesting. Um, I'm walking down the street one day. Um, sounds like a story. Right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, Myself and and my brother Sam, mm -hmm. or your uncle Sam, shout out to Sam. We're walking down the street, and we run into this one young guy, who says that he's starting a group, and he says, "I don't know whether you could sing or not, but just by your voice, I think you can sing." In fact, he it, this this is like a fourteen year old kid, right? Okay, it turned out to be Melvin Miller, who um, who who worked with. Um, Holland Dozier Holland mm -hmm. of Motown. Right. And uh, I mean, this guy really is a musical genius. But, um, but he's the first one that told me I could sing. 
which was interesting because when I actually got into the group and we were recording, uh, one of the, um, the, the, the writers of the songs that we were singing told me I couldn't sing. And what was the name of the group, just for the people at home? Uh, well, first it was, um, uh, well, uh, uh, the group I was in at that time was called One on One. And that's the picture I have of you. Yes, that's the picture. And um, and they were an offshoot of this other group uh, called the New York Port Authority. Okay. So. Okay. And so when the writer was coming to you, like, all right, this is what you're going to sing as far as your notes are concerned, they weren't pleased. He wasn't pleased. He wasn't pleased. You know, but there was politics involved. <laughs> because not only did he want to be the writer, but he also wanted to be the lead singer, too. Ah, uh, treachery is afoot. Uh, there you go. Yo, you know you can't sing, you know, right? Skullduggery. Skullduggery. What you said. And as all this is happening, did you develop uh, your love for the congas at this point, or did that come later? That that That's a good question. Um, I didn't fall in love with, with hand drums until I'd gone to college. and um, So we're right here, 1968. We're right in pocket, as far as the timeline. Exactly, exactly. And uh, there was a, a college classmate that I had. His, his name was Andy Kaufman. And he's the one that was on, um, on the TV show Taxi. That was your college? As, as, as Latka. Wow. And he had a conga drum, but I was too poor. Right. I couldn't afford one. Right. So he let me come to his room and 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 we would play together mm -hmm. on his one conga. So that's what got me really involved in it. You know, something else that happened around this time of your freshman year of college is your appreciation of food. Because I remember you told me that things were so tight as far as finances was concerned. You literally went your entire life hungry until you turned 18. So now, so what school did you go to? Where? The first school, 1968, you leave grandma, grandpa's house, you go to what school? Oh, okay. I went to uh, to a college called, uh, well, first of all, when I was 17, I was in a college program, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, the school that I went to was, was called Adelphi Suffolk, mm -hmm. okay? Which was, was later, ch which la later changed to Dowling College, mm -hmm. okay? Then from there, I went to a school called Graham Junior College in, in Boston. Okay. Why Boston? Ah, because I needed to get the hell out of Dodge. I mean, yeah, but yeah, you have the South, you have the Midwest, you have California. Why Boston specifically? That, that, that's a good question. As, as, as your grandmother used to say, have you... Have you, have you thought that through? <laughs> so apparently I didn't. <laughs> right. So how did you even know that this college exists? Because I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I have a tough time imagining adulthood without the internet. And just knowing about that there's a college in Boston, it's not like you can just go online, go to Google, top colleges in Boston. So how do we even amass the knowledge to know, like, all right, this is where I'm going to go? Um. Uh, Thanks to my, you know, it was it was interesting uh, during that time. A lot of uh, black students would would say that their guidance counselor 
dissuaded them from going to college. Right. Okay. Maybe you should do something with your hands or, mm-hmm. you know, or some kind of develop a trade, or, uh, develop a trade. Exactly. I never had that because I had, my teachers always thought I had a running knowledge of the English language. Right. Okay. And the way I spoke, because uh, when I would speak sometimes, sometimes even the teachers would be surprised. Okay. My mm-hmm. coaches would be surprised. I can relate. You know what I mean? But but, uh, but the problem was, was that if you don't have a, a food or nutrition, you can't be a great student. I also can relate. Right. So, um, so I, I don't, what was the rest of the question? No, I was asking you, how did you even get the knowledge that there was this college in Boston? Because oh, you didn't have the ability to go online yourself. I'm glad you said that. So thanks to my the guidance counselors, mm. they got me into that college program. It was called Upward Bound mm. in 1967. Mm. Okay, and that's when I first got the idea of the, it, it. It was a possibility to further my education. Mm. Okay, so um, so they sent out letters to different colleges, and they you know some of the colleges. Uh, sent me acceptance letters. Right. So I had a couple of rejections. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, now we're entering the 70s, you know, because you're, you bounce from college to college. You named three colleges prior to going to Boston. So now we're at 1970. And there's three distinct things that I can think of in regards to the 70s as a man that wasn't there. And that's Afros, <laughs> black television, and cocaine. <laughs> Afros came out actually in the sixties. Really? Yeah. Oh, um, the, for my okay. So I watched this documentary on Sam Cooke. Right. And um, they were saying that Sam Cooke had this very this revolutionary way of viewing music. He didn't want to treat everybody like slaves. He was going to treat everybody as equal right. as their own boss, and that's why he eventually got uh, assassinated. But I bring him up because a lot of people credit him the popularity of the afro is that true as somebody that was there in real time wow was was black people like oh sam cook oh that's what we got going on we can do that we don't we don't got to get the uh the what what's my man jackie from the 50s james brown before james brown jackie who was the the preeminent pop star that james brown and jackie wilson jackie wilson so we don't got to get the story about jackie wilson too okay (laughs) so we in 1967 got it well um, I'll keep my train of thought. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep mine. But, <laughs> That's uh, what I'm saying. You go but, ahead. But anyway, um, in uh, as a result of, of being in in um, Upward Bound, uh, I got introduced to this uh, this this organization called um, uh, Conference of uh, um, National Conference of Christians and Jews. And they allowed me to spend one week. They took about four of us from the group and um, and took us to this place called Bard College, which was on the Hudson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Manhattan. So, no, no. This was a small town. Oh, so you're talking about, uh, when I'm thinking the Hudson, I think of Manhattan and things right, like that. You're talking about upstate. Upstate. Got it. Right, right. So... Um, so there I met uh I met the daughter of this prominent uh singer um 
God, what, what was his name? His name was Arthur Prysock. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of a jazz um, singer. And he was around the time of Billy Eckstein. And, uh, right. So anyway, so, um, so I got friendly with her and her girlfriend. And she was having a Sweet 16 party mm-hmm. that I was invited to. Right. But I had no clothes. So your, your Aunt Vivian took me out, bought me a suit. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for those listening, that's grandma's sister, my, my his mother's sister. Right. So, um, so I'm. They were there was a a show called My Super Sweet Sixteen on um, on on MTV. Okay, yeah, I remember that show. Yeah. Well, I went to one of the first ones, the Super Sweet Sixteen, because mm-hmm. I went to the party. And um, and I think uh, her father bought her a car for graduating from high school. And also, the entertainment was Jackie Wilson, mm. right? Right. So I'm sitting down and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm having a conversation with people at the table and whatnot. And this hand touches me on the back and says, Leon, you're still cracking jokes. You can't imagine how you can have one of the the preeminent black black celebrities at that time mm-hmm. knowing your name, right? You know, so that's my Jackie Wilson story. <laughs> now that's cool, and what the reason why I brought him up is because you know he was the archetype, you know him, Little Richard, and stuff like that, like that coolie, you know, put the perm in the hair kind of exactly. situation, exactly. and they credit Sam Cooke with bringing forth the afro so what i'm saying is as you like literally being of age of being able to be 14 15 years old like okay this is what we got going on i like that do do you think it started with him as somebody who literally lived through it he was he was part of it but you know sometimes you can only focus in on what it is that you see yeah okay so what i saw was the um that they used to call it the process Mm-hmm. Okay, where, where you would put the chemicals in your hair yeah. and you get straight hair. Fried, right? dyed, laid to the side. Exactly, exactly. And then at the same time, the afro started to emerge. Mm-hmm. So you you pretty much and and plus there was the Caesar where you, where you could cut off all your hair. So right. there were so many choices at that time, where I don't I don't think you had too many choices. Before that, or, or may, in that generation, let's put it that way. Not to belabor this Afro talk because I have way more stuff to talk to you about, but your best friend and my best friend's father, Mr. Nathan, he says something to me, and I want you to dispel this rumor once for all. He said he brought the Afro to Amityville. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> As somebody that lived across the street from him, he said he brought the Afro to Amityville. That's what he told me. I'll call him right now. That's what he told me. You're the same age as this man. You was raised on the same block as this man. Y'all both came up together. Is this true? I'm I'm laughing because <laughs> because um, I, I, I was the kind of person that when we were younger, I would travel to like Manhattan or the Bronx mm-hmm. and things like that. And um, I hate to say, but um, 
I don't know what the Nathan Nathan might have brought it to Amityville. That's what he's saying. He brought the Afro to Amityville. Okay, that that's that's completely possible. Okay. But is it probable? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I got No, what'd you be saying? So, you know, so now we're in the 70s. You know, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Yes. You know, Sam Cooke assassinated. JFK assassinated. Uh, Malcolm X assassinated. You know, all, all, um, the uh, Huey Newton. Uh, I'm sorry. It wasn't Huey Newton that was assassinated. Who was that? That was in the Black Panthers. That was Hampton. Fred Hampton. Yeah. Uh, Fred Hampton was assassinated. So now you're in the 70s. You're leaving by literally the most transformative and the most destructive decade simultaneously in regards to, you know, the ending of segregation, but literally all of our thought leaders being well, you, massacred you, in front of us. You forgot one thing. It was the the, the era of free love. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. So that's what I'm saying, because Woodstock was what year? 1969. 1969. Why didn't you go? Because I have a theory about this, but I want you to talk first. I didn't go. I, I just happened in on certain situations. You know what I mean? They, and, and, and when you're poor, you know, you're pretty much locked into certain areas. Right. But the, but the good thing about my life was that other people made it possible for me to do certain things, mm -hmm. even though I was poor. Right. So one of the reasons why I didn't go to uh, Woodstock was because, first of all, I didn't have my own transportation right. to get there. And second of all, I, the money that I was saving was to go back to school mm -hmm. and not to party. Right. And um, yeah, you would have you would have had to to get to upstate New York, mm -hmm. okay, and back. So that was um, that was the reason why I didn't go. Well, that was one of the reasons. So it was told to me by a gentleman that's also your age, like although we have. Um, what 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 is it called when you not revisionist history, when something in the past is super dope and you're just looking at the past and then you bring it back into real time? Why is this word escaping me? With um nostalgia. Okay. The nostalgic beam that surrounds Woodstock was like oh Jimi Hendrix, uh everybody else that was there performing all this love and tranquility and stuff. But in real time, people was there for four days straight. They was trapped on the road. There was a showering. They had to they had to defecate on the side of the street. It was unsanitary. People were sleeping in mud. So they're like, yo, I mean, documentaries can try to glorify it all they want, but I wasn't going to that. Like, they make it seem dope 20 years later, but in the moment. <laughs> but, but, but it was because... Right. Um, Knowing people that went there, right? Even though the the conditions were horrendous, there were a lot of people that helped other people out, right? You know, they fed. They hitchhiking fed. was prominent at this time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and um, and a lot of drugs. So a lot. So this drugs. is why I wanted to transition to the seventies because what's told to us people that weren't there is you um you look at free love in conjunction with like hippie type of perspective and hippies you know with scooby doing whatever have you is tied to the 70s isn't it 
with the peace sign and everything and people with bandanas and walking around barefoot on college campuses. Wasn't this in the 70s or no? It was in the 60s. Okay. Because uh, in the 50s, it was the beatniks that were. Mm. Okay, and poems and, and, and weed and stuff like that. Right. The next, the next 10 years were the hippies. Got it. Okay, so now we're in the 70s. And we're still with free love. We're still with Afros that started in the 60s. And now we have you as an adult in 1971. What is the first adult decision that you can remember doing? 21 years old, free into the world, Amityville uh, in your rearview mirror. What was it like for Uncle Leon in 1971? Well, to be honest with you, I was confused. Okay. Because... There's that transition from being a teenager to being an adult. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the lines were blurred. Right. Okay. So one of the things I was thinking about was getting, um, since my mother and father were married, I wanted to try to find a woman that I could be with and I could marry. Mm -hmm. Okay. Not thinking of you know, the lack of education, mm -hmm. okay, the lack of uh, resources. Right. The ramifications of getting married that early. Absolutely. You just wanted to follow Absolutely. suit with what, what, what Grandpa did. And especially if you don't know anything. Right. You know, because I, I burst at, at age 21, I didn't know anything. Yeah, and information wasn't as readily available as it oh, was now. Oh, no, no. The only, the, the only information you could get was from either libraries or from um, encyclopedias, people, uh, right? And stuff. People mm -hmm. that were older than you, right? You know, your parents, your relatives, and things like that, and off the street, right? And a lot of times we learned a lot of stuff off the street, mm -hmm. and wondered why we were listening to those knuckleheads, right? You know, because they didn't, you know, they didn't know they're beh they're behind from first base, right? You know what I mean? But we didn't know it because they looked cool, and right? They acted but um, if that's the only thing you see in your community, if you don't see a lot of doctors and lawyers, and yeah, you know, you're gonna you're gonna opt for the things that that are more within reach. Mm -hmm. So, so I didn't really think much of anything, but starting to work and maybe uh, getting married. But then that was problematic too because I didn't want to have children. So you were still laser focused on having no kids. Oh, please. I, I, in fact, I still hear babies crying <laughs> at this age. Now I hear it. So, yeah, around this I time. I was thinking about uh, going to the local dry cleaners and getting some plastic bags to take care of my little sisters and brothers to make sure they're comfortable. <laughs> But I didn't well, do that. I, I'm happy that you decided not to because I wouldn't have been here <laughs> as a result of that. So I'm happy. So, you know, all, all throughout that, you know, amongst your confusion and looking for a woman to find love, because you were married once before, right? To my understanding? Yeah. Well, I was and, married once. And you were, what year was this that you got married? 73. And you got divorced when? 75. Grand opening, grand closing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but, but, the good thing about it is that every bad thing that happened to me, I tried to learn from it. Right. Now, did I make the same mistakes over and over sometimes? Absolutely. Mm. But, um, but I don't think I would have reached 73 
if I didn't learn something. I agree. You know, so. Um, so what led to uh, the demise of that relationship? The fact that I didn't know anything. But even with that being said, right, because I just want to interject here. You know, when you're looking at grandma and grandpa, they have a blossoming wedding. I mean, a blossoming marriage. It wasn't perfect, obviously. Right. Of course, they had their ins and outs and their arguments and their fallouts. But there was no example, to my understanding, of a divorce from what you've seen. So that carrying that nature of let's just tough it out. I had, I had no idea. You know, I just thought about it. I'm the first person that I knew of that got divorced. And this is what I'm saying. Wow. Cause so you was, cause you was talking about not allowing, you know, being a company man and being a, a husband to rob you of your mind and your, and your ways of uh, critical thinking. Right. Well, if you were literally having no examples of anybody getting divorced and everybody was like, yo, white picket fence, wife, kids, what led you to be like, you know what? Nah, <laughs> no thanks. I'm not with this. What, what led to that decision? Um, well, you literally being the first example of divorce in the family. Well, th th this is a little-known secret. Mm -hmm. But um, when uh, when I when I met my uh, my my wife at the at the time, uh, she was still connected with her old boyfriend, and they and and, and they remained in contact. Right. So one day she went to, out to hang out with him. And uh, I'm not going to tell you the, you know, the messy details. But right. I just said, I can't do this. Right. You know, it's either me or him. And then uh, we broke up. And, and you uh, did this as a married man. Oh, yeah. And then um, I, I, I thought about my father and my mother and how they were able to keep their marriage together. Right. So I said, well, let me try to re reconcile. So I remember there was a. A movie called Taking of the Pe the Pelham One Two Three. Oh, the one that Denzel wound up uh, remaking. Yes, yes, the original. And um, I'm in there, and I'm looking at the movie, and I can't even enjoy the movie because I'm thinking about her and her ex being. Oh, I've been there. No matter what you watch, you can't focus. I can't focus. <laughs> I can't focus. I cannot focus. The only thing I could think of is. I'll be glad when this movie is over so I never have to see this woman again, right. ever. Yeah. Right? And that's what happened. You haven't seen her since. I ha haven't spoken to her or seen her since. That's that's deep. And um, because... Hey, but, 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 but let me let me just say this. Right. I don't want to... Uh, we had religious differences. Right. Okay? Um, I was a Methodist and she was the devil. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> what it really was was that um, uh, I couldn't be the kind of husband because I didn't know enough. Right. You know. And, I mean? and what in what capacity though? Because I think I know what you mean. Because I also was in a long term relationship in my twenties, as you know. Right. But when you're saying that you were knowledgeable, because that's I believe that's the third time you said it. Yeah. You were knowledgeable. You didn't know enough. In what capacity did you not have enough information? Okay. In what realm of... Uh, First of all, realm? I didn't understand how the um, <coughs> the rent and mortgage situation worked. Right. I didn't understand about having a good credit. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand about saving money. Right. Okay. I didn't understand about something as simple as going to the local utilities 
and getting them turned off and turned on. Mm-hmm. Okay, I didn't even know how to how to how to iron my own clothes at that time. Right. So after the divorce, I I set out to try to discover all of those things that I should have known when I walked into marriage at twenty five years old at this point. At uh, 25, 26. This is 1975, 1976. So throughout this time between 1971 and 1976, uh, as legend would have it, you know, not to say anything incriminating, but you decided to have this tax-free lifestyle of selling cupcakes. (laughs) (laughs) And from my understanding, the cupcake business was booming. (laughs) How did you get into selling cupcakes? Okay, okay. That is a good question. Uh, I think it was it was July of 1973. <laughs> <laughs> now, what album was out? Paint the picture. What what album was out at this time? What album? The the dominant album that everybody's playing at parties. Uh, I think that's that was Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions. Okay. I, think, I was gonna say it's time. one or two. It's either James Brown or Stevie Wonder. It gotta well, be. Well, well, it was it was kind of well. Uh, James Brown had more of the uh, the 45s. Yes. But that album. Steve, well, I always had this thing, this connection with Stevie Wonder in my own head. Right. You know, I always... Y'all literally was, the same age, so I, I can imagine. I, exactly. So I always thought he and I were friends. Right. You know, he doesn't know me from a can of paint. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, and in fact, the first record that I ever bought with my own money mm-hmm. was Fingertips Part 2. Mm. And uh, that was the first record that Stevie Wonder had put out and is he that was like uptight everything is all no, right no 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 the uh fig- fingertips was clap your hands just a little bit louder Got clap it. your hands Got just so one more time <laughs> and uh that was the first record I bought with my own money I saved mm-hmm. up I was hungry I had, I had no other wherewithal Right, but 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 to get this record, yeah, two two blind prodigies going on at the same time with Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder. Yeah, but they were separated by, let me see, by at least a generation. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. So okay, so Stevie Wonder, Intervisions. What's the what's the dominant song on the Intervisions album? Oh God, I can look it uh, up. The only thing I can remember is wait a minute, I can remember. Uh, Golden Lady mm-hmm. and Too High. <laughs> okay. And I love Too High. <laughs> now, 100%. So I just want to make sure those are uh, those are B cuts. So Living for the City. Living for the City yeah. is probably the song that everybody would know. That's the one everyone would know. And Don't You Worry <laughs> About a Thing, which is in literally every romantic comedy since the 70s. Absolutely. Don't You Worry About a Thing. Yeah, I, I, I love that song. But, uh, so it's 1973. We got Intervisions playing. And we're talking about your introduction into okay. cupcake salesmanship. Okay. So I was working for this engineering firm and I was doing the blueprints and, you know, redoing blueprints and stuff like that. And uh, we used to all hang, and this was down, you know, right near Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a park there called Battery Park. I'm familiar okay. with Battery Park. Right. So at lunchtime, we would all go to, to Battery Park. Mm-hmm. 
and we would all sit around talking about, um, we would never talk about work, but we talked about fun. Right. Talked about hanging out and and what drugs were available. <laughs> so I saw how much commerce was done in that park. Right. And I said, I could do this better. Yeah. I need in on this. So, and then I was making so much money doing that. And I was living in Manhattan at the time. And this is when you first uh, did your first trip overseas. Was this the first airplane you've been on? When you was oh, going no, to. The first airplane I was on <coughs> was in, um, what, uh, 1968. Okay. Because they used to have this thing called the, um, oh, God. Uh, something shuttle mm-hmm. I can't remember but uh, it used to go from uh, from, from LaGuardia to, um, to to Logan Airport mm-hmm. the Eastern Shuttle mm-hmm. okay and um, so that was my first plane ride right okay but then after that I started thinking about doing world travel and since I was selling cupcakes yes I said where would where would a person that sell cupcakes, where would they go? Mm-hmm. Where would they go to get the cupcakes? Right. Where would they go to dispense the cupcakes? <laughs> where would they go to eat the cupcakes? <laughs> <laughs> and at this point in time, t- uh, tell the listenership the countries he was traveling to at this time. Oh, well, my family didn't know. Right. But I was delivering cupcakes to different places. Right. The first place I went to was um, I I travel I traveled first class to Houston, hmm. right then, and I was bringing a load of cupcakes. Yes, indeed. <coughs> so, so the the part of me that was thinking at the time now it was might have been stinking thinking, but uh, <laughs> but but it's it was still thinking nonetheless. Right. I said and. Um, the people that wanted me to, to take the trip bought me first-class tickets. Right. Right? So I said, if I'm going to be flying first-class, mm-hmm. in order for people not to, well, t- to not people zero in on exactly who you are and what you're doing, I dressed up in a suit and had an attache case. Got to look like you belong there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, to the point where... People in first class were asking me, oh, what, what kind of business you were in? And mm-hmm. uh, so without without even, well, well, I was thinking, but. Did uh, you tell people you was an engineer? Because you oh, were just no, at a. No, no, I told them um, I was into import-export. <laughs> <laughs> and, and from Houston, you, uh, from my understanding, you also went to Brazil and you also went to Africa around this time, right? I went to. I went to Brazil. Then from Brazil, I went to uh, Bolivia. And Bolivia, I went to Chile. Mm-hmm. And then the Peru. Incredible cupcakes there, from what I'm told. Oh, oh, God. And, <laughs> and Colombia. Right. Um, the, God, the godfather of cupcakes. Interesting cupcakes. Right. But I could never get close enough to get to the real supply. Right. Which was good. 
Right. Because who knows what would have happened at that point. Exactly. You know what I mean? So so there's an old saying, God looks after uh, fools and babies. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and I, since I wasn't a baby. Right. <laughs> Process of elimination. Right, right. Then from there, I was able to go to uh, Morocco mm-hmm. and uh, a couple of countries in Europe and um, and a couple of countries in Scandinavia. Unbeknownst to the family. Unbeknownst to the family. They didn't the, know anything. The less they know, the better at this well, point. Well, I, I looked at it this way. Since I was dealing in cupcakes, mm-hmm. um, if there was any questions asked, right. Nobody would know anything. Exactly. You couldn't snitch on me if, even if you wanted to. Exactly. Exactly. You couldn't uh, be be drunk somewhere and just blurt out the fact that, uh, you know, my brother's right. over in, in, um, in Germany. Right. Or in, um, or in England or in Spain. On a cupcake scholarship. Exactly. Exactly. So, so now we're from the mid-20s to the late-20s. I, I need you to... And in the best way possible, because we're not running out of time. This is my show. This can go for as long as I want it to go. I, I just need you to articulate how much of a ball it was to live in Manhattan at this time. At literally the the magnum opus of black television, the magnum opus of culture. You know, everybody's giving daps. It's black power to its fullest. It's a great time to be black at this decade. Oh, and you're literally the age to reap the benefit of being, because you wasn't too old. It wasn't like you was grandpa. You weren't my mom. That was technically in the 70s, but, you know, you were in your 20s. You was a man at this point. Absolutely. What was it like having a, a pocket full of untaxed cupcake money in Manhattan, nice cars, women? What was it like? Well, first of all, it was the apartment. Remember I had mentioned earlier mm-hmm. how important it is to have a place where you can operate from. Yes. Okay, I lived in a six and a half room uh, apartment. Um, As a divorced man with no kids, had a six and a half room right. apartment. Um, <laughs> right down the street from Columbia University. Right. And um, and, and and just the idea of having so much money at the time, you know what I considered money. Yeah. You know, which is. It's all relative. Right, right. Because you came from nothing. You went from starving for 18 years straight. So I can just imagine. Absolutely. So um, it would be interesting to look into uh, maybe uh, an outfit that you hadn't worn. Right. You wore one time and then you reach into the pockets and you got like $500 in there. Mm Mm-hmm. Or you um, you reach in, uh, you have a suit, and you put it on, and you feel this lump, and oh, cupcakes! What <laughs> <laughs> present? But the idea of coming from a situation where very very few people listen to you, mm-hmm. you know, because you're poor and you're black, and, right? You know, and you live in a certain area where everybody's the same way mm-hmm. to, a, to, to a, a time where you have money where you're paying people off to get into certain places mm-hmm. you're hanging out in after hour spots and you know um, you, 
stage, you're meeting all kinds of women. So put a pause on this. What kind of car was you driving at this time? Uh, at the time, well, that's good. I had um, I had worked making cupcakes. Yes. For uh, uh, I think it was a whole. I think for two or three weeks straight. Mm-hmm. You know, I hardly got any sleep. And at the end of that time, I had about maybe at had maybe about fifty thousand dollars in cash. Mm-hmm. So, which uh, if you was to relate that to today's money, it's got to be a quarter million dollars, probably. Um, I I don't know, but uh, yeah. let's put it this way: I could go and do whatever I wanted. So, right. So I said, let me think. Because I was going out to get a, I, I was going to buy a brand new Mercedes Benz or BMW mm-hmm. or Cadillac, right? And I said, that's kind of ostentatious. Mm-hmm. So maybe I should kind of try to fly under the radar, right? Pretty much. So I bought a, a brand new uh, Datsun uh, two. It was a two eighty Z. For for those of y'all listening at home. Google a Datsun 280Z and look how dope this car looked at this time. And then I got a 280ZX and then I got a 300. Cool looking cars, but cars that were in ostentatious as you were saying were like, well, where'd you get the money for this? Exactly. Like you can get, you can get a, you can get that type of car, the Datsun while working at, you know, Walmart, whatever. You just save your money. Oops. No, you couldn't. And in fact, it was your Aunt Pat. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, her and and Harold. Matriarch of the family and her husband, by the way. Right. They were driving a a, a Datsun something, the family car. Gotcha. Right? And Pat would always say, well, you know, Leon, you could afford the the flagship. Right. You know, the. The The preeminent car. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so I just walked in and uh, asked the guy how much um, is, is the car on the, um, on the showroom floor mm-hmm. that you're showing. And he gave me a price. Right. And I went, I went back to my friend's car, got a bag of money, came in and paid for it. Yes, indeed. And he was, he had to shut down the uh, <laughs> Yeah, just shut down the uh the, the office and everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, now, I am not trying to glorify or glamorize what I did. No, not at but all. This is what I did. Yeah, there's peaks and valleys to where I'm going to the store, but I'm at the peak right now. Absolutely. And the reason why I asked about the car is because you're a single black man in his mid to late 20s in a sick bedroom apartment in Manhattan with a Datsun. What was it like? It was not the power you had. What was it like? I know you. you I know you have this very uh, this this regal sense of uh, explaining things. But tell me, what was the hose like, Uncle Leo? What was the hose? What was the vibes like? What was going on? There were so many women that um, I I can't explain to you. They would come in waves. In fact, some of the people I hung, I hung out with. Mm-hmm. Some of their women would hit on me <laughs> on the down low. Of course, you know what I mean. And did you so, take advantage? 
It was. Did you take advantage? I took advantage one time. Yes, indeed. One time. And uh, that one time, uh, she comes over the house. Mm -hmm. She buys some cupcakes. Right. And then she propositions me. So we um, we do that. And uh, and she's leaving the apartment. We're leaving the apartment. And who happens to show up but her boyfriend? And I don't think he ever forgot that. <laughs> and, but, but I learned a lesson in all of that. That, you know, in, in order to keep certain friendships and certain relationships, you can't cross the line. Right. You know what I mean? So I did learn that. So now I don't even look at, it, it, you know, any of my friends and, the, and their wives or anything like that. You are off limits. But what was the jewelry game like? Chains, bracelets, rings, watches. What was going on? Oh God, um, I had. Um, I was always a minimalist when it came to that. Mm -hmm. You know, I would have couple of gold necklaces but uh i wouldn't wear them both at the same time or, right. or or i had like five of them and i wouldn't wear them all at the same time i wear like one necklace uh a gold diamond ring uh a gold watch silk shirts and bell bottoms at this time uh bell bottoms yes, yes. okay in fact when i went to italy i had um i, I was in rome and i had uh a, 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 a bespoke suit. They don't know nothing about that. Okay, bespoke. What they know about that. Right. <laughs> bespoke is, it's, as you well know, is, is, is something that's tailor-made. Mm -hmm. So I go in with the, with the cash, and uh, it's a designer called Raphael mm -hmm. at the time, right? And the people that were working for him made me a suit. Right. And this was an off-color I mean, off-white color um, summer wool suit. Mm -hmm. and Eddie, so we're talking uh, like eggshell. Eggshell, exactly, exactly. So I destroyed that, but I won't go into <laughs> how I destroyed So it. we got suits, we got jewelry, we got women, we have cars, we have rooms galore. Everybody in the, in the family is like, all right, we know what, what Uncle Leon's doing, what, what Leon is doing at the time. It's all good. And then the um, things started to catch up with you. And the police are alerted about your cupcake uh, salesmanship. Right. How did that happen to you? What, what happened top to bottom? I think you young people call it slipping. <laughs> okay. And this is how it was. Because I, I remember I was selling cupcakes to this one guy. Right. And he says, how do I know you're not a cop? Why don't you sit down and do this with me? Beginning to the end. Because as your Uncle Rob would say, a monkey can't sell bananas. <laughs> right. And you cannot be your, 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 your biggest customer. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and then I sold some cupcakes to some undercover cops. And that Murder, the, she wrote. And that was the beginning of the end right there. And, th and this is when um, they really started to come down. But what was that? Uh, I'm trying to think of that, that movie Johnny Depp was in, Blow. Who was 
the character he was playing in that movie when it was literally going on. So did you see that movie Blow with Johnny Depp? Yeah, I did. They were, that was based on a true story, but the name of the guy who was playing in that role is uh, escaping me. But this is literally when they started to crack down on cupcake sales and ship and started throwing those football numbers around. That, but, that was called the, uh, the, the, the Rockefeller drug laws. Yes. But you uh, had to serve four years, right? Yeah. So the reason why I wanted to bring that into the story is because from when you had to go on your sabbatical to when you was released, you were literally the same age I am right now. It's That's 1982. Right. That's right. And one dominant thing is now in the diaspora of the black community that wasn't there when you went away, and that is crack cocaine. Okay. But let's let's go back. Okay. In the seventies, in the um, they had what was called freebase. Okay. Uh, what happened to Richard Pryor, right? Exactly. Exactly. So I learned how to freebase. Uh-huh. Well, I learned I learned how to uh, put the chemicals with the cupcakes and come up with freebase. Mm-hmm. And uh, during that time, you had to have money to be, to be able to do that. But then someone had the bright idea in the 80s to... Put some baking soda in that thing. There, there you go. There you go. And uh, uh, I don't know what the chemical comp- comp- uh, composition was, mm-hmm. but uh, it was a lot cheaper. Right. Okay. But it didn't taste the same. You know, that's the right. thing. I mean, they had the same results, mm-hmm. but didn't taste the same. So how do you get reacclimated as a 32-year-old? It's 1982. Um, things is popping in a, in a major way. Reagan is now the president, if, if I'm not mistaken. He was. What is going through your mind as a man in his 30s that literally, you couldn't have, in my opinion, I don't think you could have done your 20s any better. You tried marriage. You tried cupcake salesmanship. You had independence. You tried college. You was in a um, a music group. You did everything a man can do. You you fell in love with an int- instrument. Now with all these things that have culminated to who you are as far as your uh, very unique way of thinking. Now we're 30 years old. My 20s are over. How do you get reacclimated into society? Well, because then I was... Um I was that 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 person that ate bananas during the whole eighties. Oh, you you was in, you was involved in bananas. Now, was yeah. was you involved with the uh, with the upgraded bananas, or were you keeping it with the same bananas that was going on in the seventies? Did you fall no, victim no, to banana? No, no, no. no. I, I, one thing I've I found out. Well, nobody had to tell me this. Right. If someone doesn't know that you're doing something. Mm-hmm. Then you can continue for as long as until someone finds out. Right. But once someone finds out, now you have a choice. Mm-hmm. You know, you can still be that monkey selling bananas, mm-hmm. or or you can change the whole trajectory of your lifestyle. Yes. So at uh, at the end of of the eighties and early nineties. I decided, well, uh, you know, you tell yourself, self, we need to do something different. Right. Otherwise, we're not going to survive. And, and at that point, I think I had the mindset of thinking about what do you do 
to get from one decade to the other. Right. Okay, because you have to think about that. You know, the things you were doing in your 20s, you can't do in your in your 30s. Mm-hmm. If you do, you stand out like a sore thumb. Right. You subject yourself to certain people, places, and things, and things usually don't go well for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at a certain point, because uh, uh, I had a friend of mine, and we used to always uh, um, hang out after work mm-hmm. and eat cupcakes. Right. <laughs> you know? So one day I just I decided I no longer have a sweet tooth. Right. No more cupcakes. Hey. So I told him, I said, we can't hang out because we used to go over his house and and hang out till like five or six in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, eating cupcakes. 100%. So um, I, 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 I said to him, in fact, you went to um, his birthday party. Oh, him? <laughs> yeah. That's how long y'all go back? Oh, listen, we go back as far as my hairline. <laughs> and, you know, all throughout this time, you know, from 1950 to now we're in the mid 80s. Uh, if my calculations are correct, Bill Cosby raped like 500 women. Yeah. What was that about? OK, this is the thing that a lot of people don't understand. That when you have power and money there's certain things that society allows you to do right until you cross the line mm-hmm. okay because there's been a lot of situations that that's why it's funny when um when when you see these shows like maury and stuff like that mm-hmm. and and uh, and women don't know uh well some women don't know who the father of their child is right I've been in situations where people were so high. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know who they did. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what they did. Right. You know what I mean? Some people had to tell them what they, what they did. Right. And some people didn't tell them. <laughs> you know, so. But, um, but but what was your other part of that question? No, you know, because the reason why I was saying, oh, oh, well, I was, yeah, I was, I was making a joke, but outside of that, the one thing I wanted to also ask you, you know, I know he was living vile and cruel, but what was dating like in the 70s as opposed to the 80s? Well, well in the 70s, I had a lot of money, so right. I could say, like like I said to your Aunt Felicia, mm-hmm. uh, one, one day I said, uh, just pack your bags, you know, we're just going. And, and for the listeners at home, I know he said that he said he was uh, married once, but Aunt Felicia was his, how long were you guys together? 38 years. 38 year relationship, they was never married, but you know, the government couldn't have brought them any closer. So, so in the 70s is when you met Aunt Felicia. And you were how old and she was how old? I was 26 and mm-hmm. I think she was 19. 26 and 19. Right. So I was the first one that uh, fly her out from, um, from from New York to go to another country. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of firsts. Right. And, you know, she 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 held it down for your oh, sabbatical yeah. Yeah. and things like that. And, now it's and, 19. And, and, and Tariq, that's one of. The biggest mistakes, I think that was bigger than getting addicted to, to cupcakes, mm-hmm. what I did to her. You know what I mean? If I had my life to live all over again, because 
she hung in there. Right. You know what I mean? So I just want to give her her props. 100%. And, you know, just from um from videos and from television and from old magazines that you can read, it looked like, you know, aesthetically, the world changed dramatically from the 70s to the 80s. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, socially, what do you think would like the stark differences between then? Well, first of all, it was uh, the drug situation in the 70s mm-hmm. that kind of built. Studio yeah. 54. Yeah, exactly. St- things of that exactly. nature. Exactly. Then there, uh, there was AIDS. That, then there was AIDS. That changed. <laughs> that changed the whole trajectory. Arthur Ashe. Of that's the how 80s. It, Arthur Ashe was Absolutely. the first. If I understand, was that the first big athlete that contracted the virus and passed away? I can't remember, but I, 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 I think you might be you right. Know, I don't want to make light of the situation, but he put AIDS on the map. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, and then it was um, what, what's his name, um, Magic Johnson. Right, but that, but that's the, but that's later. the nineties, yeah. Because by then, you know, Basquiat died from all this, and you know, um, oh, yes. the other the other white painter, uh, what is his name? Uh, he's everywhere, like all his work. You know, the the stick figure people. Oh yes, I forgot his name, but uh, he used to hang out down in the village. Yes, right. Him white dude with the glasses. Yeah. What, what is his yeah. name? I, I can't it's, it's escaping me, yeah. but him. But uh, you keep talking. I'm gonna keep. Uh, I'm gonna look then, it up. And then there was uh, Gia, the model. Okay. Because um, she she died from um, from from drug use around that time, you know. So the, it, it and then there was the um, uh, in in the eighties. It was Reagan and Bush. Keith Haring. Yes, Haring. Her- right. Right. It was Reagan and Bush that um, uh, that that had um, uh, I forgot what it was called, but uh, but they traded uh, guns for drugs, right? Okay, and uh, and they pumped it into the black communities mm-hmm. in the in the United States, which was proven. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but 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 I know that. But you know, a lot of times people will dismiss it as conspiracy theory. But these are these are things that ended up being proven. Like this stuff was not here, and it was purposely placed here. Yes, yes. So now, so now we're in the eighties. You know, now you're starting to enter real adulthood as you're going towards your forties, and then you set up shop in the Bronx at this time, right? Mm Mm-hmm. What led to you wanting to set up shop in the Bronx in that story department that I knew you? When I met you, that's where you was living. Yeah. Well, that was um, your Aunt Felicia. Okay. You know, because she thought enough of me to try to rehabilitate me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But uh, here it is. He is somebody that hardly worked in the 70s or 80s. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So now, all of a sudden, now you've got to think about changing your life. And um, with minimal skills. Right. But one of the good things about it is that I, I remember um, one one young man, uh, he reached me uh, on um, through uh, through Facebook. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he says, Leon, I, re- I remember you used to talk a lot when we were at Northeast School, you know, playing basketball and stuff right. like that. And I said, you can't imagine how much money I made because I could talk. Right. <laughs> so. 
100 percent and uh, i'm sorry I, I might i might have stepped on uh the momentum that you had you was explaining to me the stark differences socially from the 70s to the 80s from your yeah from your perspective is it, was there it, anything that was glaring to you oh yeah it, it, it this is the way it seemed to me mm-hmm. it seemed that the 70s it was all sunshine right and the 80s was darkness that's the only way I could describe it. Right. Because in a, a lot in, in the black community, a lot of communities were decimated mm-hmm. by, uh, by the influx of crack. Right. You know, a lot of people that had money, fortunes were wiped out. Mm-hmm. People went to jail. You know, uh, people died because uh, it, 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 the stuff was so addictive that um, that people would try to beat other people out of their money, right? Which resulted in a lot of deaths. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, and then there was the disease factor. You know what I mean? Because because of drugs and 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 AIDS, whole families were wiped out. Not ours. We no. stand strong. No, not the Paytons. No. And there was something else. It just came to me as I was speaking to you right now. Um, I was talking to Mr. Nathan again, right. you know, somebody that's also literally your your, your exact age. And I'm, I asked him this and I'm going to ask you this. I was like, so, you know, hip hop came out when you were literally an adult, a, a literally a new genre of music. 1978. So No, it was before then. Yeah, it was before then. 76, somewhere. Around. You know, in the Bronx or whatever. Right. So I was like, all right. So as you know, as the 70s came along and then, you know, uh, uh, Rapper's Delight came out in 1979 or 1980. Right. And then, you know, people that were rapping at that time begrudgingly was like, yo, they were just the caricatures of hip hop. That's not what it was about. I was like, did you think that as an art form, as the 70s were starting to fade out, did you think hip hop was going to make it? He was like, I didn't think there was a shot in hell that hip hop was going to make it. So I was going to ask, I'm going to ask you as somebody that was literally an adult the entire time hip hop has been around. Did you think that hip hop was going to make it? I laughed at it <laughs> because here it was. It was right. Two, two ninjas <laughs> with a turntable <laughs> out in the park. Right. You know, and then they had the, and at the time, um, the, um, um, the, the disc jockeys would 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 speak over the music, right? You know, which which because the MCs didn't come in until later on, right? Okay, but Africa Bombada and, and some of these other ones in the mm-hmm. rocks, they it, they literally had their equipment out in the parks, being hooked up to the the, the electrical lines of, of of the light poles, right? You know what I mean? So. <coughs> but to, but to answer your question, I didn't think it had a chance in hell. <laughs> and look how wrong I was. Right. And now you're looking at, you know, for mine, and this is just me, you know, I, I'm not going to say I'm the greatest hip-hop historian, but I think I know enough to keep up in conversation. Outside of Rapper's Delight, the one of the bigger songs of the 80s was uh, the, message. the Message. Don't push me. Because and I th- I'm close to the now, edge. Now, uh, if math serves me right, you was 35 years old when that song came out. Did that give you like a glimmer of hope? I called on. I think this can go somewhere. Well, I I remember I was watching um, Video Music Box. Mm-hmm. 
when I was in when I was behind bars, mm -hmm. and I saw Flavor Flav, and um, yeah, boy, the, he had this thing. Oh, oh God, what 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 did he say? It, it, it was the N word, but it was just the way he said it. Right. And I said, you know something? This just might work. <laughs> <laughs> because right. I saw I saw the the, the 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 DJs, the MCs, and then I saw the rap groups that that were that were being put together. And not only is Public this Public Enemy and not only is that happening, but you know the commercialization of hip hop is going on with Crush Groove and oh, Cooley High, right? And well, and not Cooley High so much because Cooley High was about um, Motown. Okay, but Crush Groove specifically and right. all the movies following after that, and then you know we have Public Enemy, and then we have um, what 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 is that Spike Lee movie when uh, it's it's a shame that I should know this at the top at the tip of my tongue, his preeminent movie that he came out with when oh. it was fight the power that came out uh when 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 fight the power was scored in the spike lee movie what do the right thing do the right thing okay do the right thing is going on and now you know combined with michael jordan public enemy and somebody brought this to my attention because i want to get your opinion on this as well you know sporting jeans casually started to happen around this time would you agree with that uh, i don't know what just 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 jeans just Literally, everybody was in khakis and slacks and oh, bell bottoms. But now, okay. introducing jeans. I mean, I know James Dean did it in the 60s and stuff. But overall, like, everybody, it was universally understood that we're going to start wearing jeans now. Does oh. that happen around this time? Um, jeans have, like, uh, literally been the, 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 the fabric of, of my life. Right. Okay, because I can remember in the 50s when um, the, you had... James Dean and everybody. Uh, right. Wrangler jeans and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Then in the, in the 60s, it was the same thing. Wrangler and, and but, there was another. But to my understanding, it was more of like a farmer, automotive. Like wearing jeans was aligned with your profession and not everybody wearing them casually from my well, understanding. Well, not everybody wore them. You're right about that. Right. But, <clears throat> um, and it was mostly in the, in the white community. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because... Um, uh, for us, we dressed back in the 60s. 100%. Shoot, we had, um, I was wearing $100 shirts in the 60s, mm -hmm. you know, which is crazy because I could have saved that money and invested in something. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but that was one of the reasons why you didn't have too much, um, too much violence in the black community mm -hmm. because a lot of us dressed and nobody wanted to mess their clothes up. I'm not right. gonna have a fight, and, and, right. you know. And I, I, I've got two hundred dollar gaiters on and <laughs> and, and, and a hundred fifty dollar shirt on, right. and I'm gonna fight you out in the street. Absolutely no, not. No, no, that wasn't gonna happen. But then uh, that that all changed. That's that's another thing. That was the other difference between the '70s and the '80s when it came in. Mm. Is that people started to dress more casually, which meant that if I only paid $3 for these pants, the heck do I care about scuffling out there? I'll just buy another pair. Right. 
You know what I mean? So that it it was a culture shift mm-hmm. at that point too. Yeah, I, I thought about that. That's yeah. so culturally, it looked like everybody was on board. We're wearing denim jeans. Period. Yeah. Black people, everybody else, and it was told to me that you know, uh, do the right thing and fight the power. Those uh, that music video and that movie in conjunction pretty much changed the 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 fashion fabric of Black America. And which is very interesting to you because now you're on the precipice of 40, literally watching culture transform in front of your eyes. What was that like? I wasn't going for it. <laughs> right. Because you come from jazz and Dizzy Gillespie and uh, Thelonious Monk and right, everybody right. else. So now you're like, whoa, public enemy. And if, what is going on? Like, what is happening? But not just that, but um, I found that I could go out with better quality women based on how I was dressed. Got it. And plus, cops almost, even though I was riding dirty, right. <laughs> and, and doing, and selling cupcakes, and right. stuff, I almost never got stopped mm-hmm. by police. Never. You know what I mean? Because it was the way you dressed and it was the way you carried yourself. Right. You know what I mean? And the fact that I wouldn't drive anything ostentatious, right? You know, this, you know, here it is. Um, I'm riding around in a fifty thousand dollar car at the time, mm-hmm. but I have no job, right? And this is in two o'clock in the afternoon. 100%. Really, come on. <laughs> yeah, would you? So you know, from 1982 when you was released to now we're at 1990. You know, you um, you really tap in with on Felicia in a major way. You go over to the Bronx. You bounce from job to job. Yeah. You're watching the culture and the fabric of America change. Uh, relieving the darkness of the 80s into the 90s. And then your favorite nephew comes about. What uh, was your rapport with like with my mother uh, up to this moment? And that's going to wrap up part one. Uh, part two is releasing tomorrow. Uh, but I did just have you for an hour and 25 minutes, so... Even if it isn't tomorrow, even if it's next week, uh, maybe it's the next time you go running, maybe it's the next time you're on the train, next time you have a long drive somewhere. Uh, But part two technically will be up tomorrow, so it'll be up to you when you want to listen to it. All right, y'all. Talk to y'all soon.